Awesome. All right. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Sunday Night Church. Welcome to everyone online. Um, I'm Brittany, and my last name is Willems or Willemse. Um It's not South African. It's actually Dutch. So all the South Africans got really excited and thought I joined their party, but I'm sorry. It's Dutch. It's Dutch. Good Dutch man. All right. Hey, um, as Monica said, tonight we are... Um, Sorry, dinner. Uh, going uh, to continue on in our series, okay, uh, talking about the things that Jesus never said. And I feel a little bit sad because I'm totally going to bring down the mood a little bit tonight. So I'm going to be talking about uh, Jesus never said we wouldn't have bad days. All right. Um, and I, I feel like we don't necessarily need to be told this. Um, we all have bad days and they look a little bit different for each of us. Um, when we're tired, we stand on a piece of Lego. Um, I stood on a plug once. That was not fun. Um, you crack the screen on your phone. Your body reacts to something you ate. Your car declines at the supermarket. I ring my sister in Auckland, which is already just a bad day. Um, and she's potty training her toddler. And I just honestly think every day of hers is a bad day. <laughs> Yesterday, I chipped my tooth. Bad day. That's going to be a bad day to come too when you have to pay for the bill, right? Yeah, I'm scared. Nick was like, my husband was just not impressed either. So I was walking around Bunnings being like, Dal, can you look at my tooth? I think I've chipped it. But I was thinking back to my youngest memories of bad days, and, I, and most of them revolved around school because I just I didn't like the place. I didn't even like kindy. It was just for, a, or I only lasted 12 years. For 12 years, it was just not my vibe. Um, but the earliest memory I can think of is one where it was at Christmas, and my family and I were living in Auckland at the time, and we'd come down to Tauranga to see all of our grandparents and spend the Christmas with them. And I must have been about six years old. And my grandmother would always sew us these um, really beautiful outfits that we would often wear to church for the year um, or wear to a wedding and things like that. But this year she went for a slightly different vibe. And um, I'd always wanted to be a nurse. That was my thing, you know. Um, ever since I knew about nurses, it was like, yep, I'm going to be a nurse. And I carried on that idea till I was about 15. And um, so my, I opened up my box and she'd have these boxes and they were like a wedding dress box, okay? So it was just this grand experience. And you'd open up your box and there was this nurse's outfit that she made me. I had this white apron with a little red cross on it and this old school nurse's hat. And, and she'd made me, um, oh, she'd got this little nurse's bag and it had like all these plastic scissors and tweezers and things that she'd got from her, um, her own doctors. Um, she assured me even at six, I remember this, that they, were, they hadn't been used. And it was super cute. Like, honestly, looking back, really, really cute idea. And so the day with, uh, the deal with these Christmas presents was that we would have to go and try them all on and parade them in the lounge in front of all the great aunties and everything. And they're all, oh, yes, very cute. Lovely, lovely. Well, I just finished parading my outfit and it was my sister's turn to open her box from Grandma. And as she opened this bulging box, not only did I realize that my four-year-old sister had no ambition like me uh, to become a nurse, but out comes this fluffy, frilly, 
princess dress with uh, like tulle and it had little pink bows and it even had this really poofy veil. Look at that. I actually cut me out of the picture. By this point, I'd taken off my nurse's outfit because I was so unimpressed. Like, talk about comparison being the thief of joy, honestly. Like, my nurse's outfit and then this. She was just stoked. Um, Grandma, if you're watching, I'm, I'm sorry. I do actually like my nurse's outfit. But... We were, it actually makes it worse because we were driving um, to visit our other grandparents later that afternoon and my sister didn't have her seatbelt on in the car. And so Melissa, mum turns around to my sister and says, Melissa, can you put your seatbelt on? And according to my parents, I replied with, yeah, because if you don't put your seatbelt on, you'll die and I get to keep your dress. <laughs> what then makes this whole event worse was that when we got back to Auckland, it seemed that every girl in our cul-de-sac all got princess dresses for Christmas. And so my darling mother's attempt to make me feel better was to find this dress. And, um, and she tried to, she, I, I remember, I think Pocahontas had maybe just come out a new rendition. And she was trying to tell me that I looked like a Pocahontas princess. Uh, that's a tablecloth on my head with a headband. And because it wasn't poofy enough, she rolled up a tea towel. So <laughs> yeah, the things mums do, eh? But don't worry, I eventually uh, had my day as we, um, I was a nurse slash surgeon, and I chopped up all the princesses later on the trampoline, so I don't know what that says about me as a child, but it's fine. But these are just the little things, right? These are the little bumps on the road, the annoying days that we claim as bad days or frustrating days, and you know, we, we find ourselves saying things like, if it's not one thing, it's another. Oh, you know, things are just relentless at the moment, or it just doesn't stop, and I just feel so overwhelmed. You know, all really very real feelings. But sometimes we have bad days that might even turn into bad weeks or months or years or as my family calls it, a season. A season that sometimes it would be like how I would envisage living in Antarctica in winter, you know, where it's dark all of the time and there's deep snow and every step is an effort and you can't see in front of you and your breathing is laborious and so the days just feel long and you're exhausted and those are the bad days that we struggle with. And in our Western society, you know, we struggle, we strive, sorry, for comfort and pleasure. And quite often when pain and suffering and bad days come along, we get a surprise and we're like, what? Where did this come from? And as much as we try to avoid it and deny it, it isn't something that can be just put aside and forgotten about. It comes and it rears its ugly head and every time disaster strikes, every time a family member gets sick or you're struggling financially or psychologically or relationally, we're confronted with this reality that bad days do exist. And I think part of the problem is that Christians sometimes sell it to others at the point of their salvation and that Christianity will be like this kitchen appliance that will solve all of your problems. Come and dedicate your life to Christ and all of your problems will go away. Come and you won't have bad days. Well, Christians believe that, you know, now that I'm a Christian, I'm safe, I'm a good person, bad things can't really happen to me now. And then a bad th day comes along and they end up saying, well, that Christianity thing didn't work, did it? But what we're going to learn about tonight is that Jesus never promised that we wouldn't have bad days. And I honestly wish that I could say otherwise. And I want to put a bit of a disclaimer here tonight. Um, I understand that mental health plays a huge role in um, a lot of bad days. However, this 
However important this is to discuss, it isn't going to be something that I'm going to cover in tonight. It's a big enough topic in its own right, um, although elements will scoot alongside it. Okay, um, But look, if you do have questions around this, there's plenty of um, people here that are really happy to talk to you about that. And um, yeah, but just sort of put that out there. But we're going to start by diving into some scripture. Um, it's John 16.33. And in the lead up to the scripture, Jesus is preparing his disciples for his crucifixion um, and him leaving them. And he spent a few years with them now, and they've seen Jesus do some incredible things, you know, heal people, feed thousands. He's promised them a comforter that will come when he's gone in the form of a Holy Spirit. He's told them about uh, being the vine and that we are the branches and that we're to abide, to remain connected uh, to him. He's talked about how the world will hate them because they hated him first how their grief will turn into joy. And then we get to this verse in John 16, 33, which starts off and it says, I have told you these things, things so that in me you may have peace. It's a good way to start, right? So it's a peace that can be found in Jesus and being in connection and in constant and consistent relationship with him. A peace that can't be found anywhere else. It's truly a beautiful, beautiful thing. But then he continues on to say, in this world, you will have trouble. So in this world, in this present reality, you will have trouble. And generally, when you need to warn people about trouble, it's not just the kind of I stood on Lego kind of trouble. It's of a decent proportion. It's the kind of trouble that makes us question if there's a God or at the very least question the character of God. It's the kind of trouble that there isn't just a simple explanation for it. It's, it's trouble. But we can go back to that first comment and know where peace is found. But the trouble, uh, know where peace is found. There's trouble, but he says, in me you will have peace. That goes beyond our human ability to understand or comprehend. And he carries on and he says, but take heart. Now, this isn't like a statement of kindness, you know, like, oh, take heart, dearie. This is like a statement of action. This is saying, don't give up, don't lose hope, hold on for dear life if you have to take heart because I have overcome the world. You know, God lives outside the scope of time and space. And so when Jesus was saying these things, he hadn't even been crucified yet. He hadn't died on the cross. He hadn't been buried. He hadn't been raised from the dead. He hadn't ascended into heaven. And yet with confidence, he's telling his disciples, I have overcome the world. How does that even work? It's because at any given time, we've got these two realities going on. One is that trouble will come and that the other is that God has overcome the world. And if you don't accept that both of these live in tension and both do exist with one another, you end up with one of two very unhealthy viewpoints. One is that trouble is coming and you have to accept it, you have to suck it up and you can't do anything about it. Or the second being that God has overcome the world so nothing bad's going to happen to me and I'm entitled to comfort and I deserve it. But when you hear what Jesus is saying in its entirety and you live with both of them, you understand that trouble is coming and that life hurts and stuff happens. There is pain, but God is bigger and God has a plan and God is always at work. And being a Christian doesn't make us exempt from these. Being a Christian means that we experience bad and really bad days like everyone else. But we have the confidence in Jesus who said in and through it all, he's an overcoming saviour. 
trouble just like the wrinkles will come. Trouble will come, but where will you turn and what do you do with that? In my role here at um, BBC, I meet a lot of people and hear a lot of stories and um, speak to people about their life circumstances. And honestly, at times, it's just heartbreaking. Um, you know, we talked about this morning with Kaimanga, we see a lot of people struggling to feed their families. We um, meet people um, who have experienced a lot of death. There's addictions, grief, um, relationship problems, and there's just pain and bad days everywhere. And many people are aware of some aspects of my story and aspects of my life that have caused me great pain and suffering. Um, obviously, the, the one that I've sort of talked about the most would be um, the death of my husband at 25 years old, uh, who died from leukemia. But prior to this event, I honestly had wondered if I'd been cursed. And I know that sounds like just almost bonkers, but because I had this lovely childhood, I had a wonderful family, but it had just felt like life continued relentlessly continued to throw me obstacle after obstacle. And it felt like to me like pain and tough life circumstances were the norm. And if there was ever a good patch and I recognized that I would hold my breath and because it would be, it felt like it wouldn't be long until something else would come. For a long time, it was God and I putting on the armor. I was always ready for battle, always ready to brace myself for the fight, to continue fighting. It was honestly exhausting. My prayers were much like that of the writer of Psalm 88, and I'm going to read you some sections from it. God, you're my last chance of the day. I spend the night on my knees before you. Put me on your salvation agenda. Take notes on the trouble I'm in. I've had my fill of trouble. I'm camped on the edge of hell. I'm written off as a lost cause. One more statistic, a hopeless case. I'm standing my ground, God, shouting for help. At my prayers every morning, on my knees each daybreak. Why, God, do you turn a deaf ear? Why do you make yourself scarce? For as long as I remember I've been hurting, I've taken the worst you can hand out and I've had it. Your wildfire anger has blazed through my life. I'm bleeding black and blue. You've attacked me fiercely from every side, raining down blows till I'm nearly dead. You made lover and neighbor alike dump me. The only friend I have left is darkness. Pretty rough psalm, eh? The only friend I have left is darkness. And when we're confronted with raw emotions and real despair, we sit back in and we go, you know, what would you say to that person? Or what do you say or tell yourself when you're feeling that way? Or having a bad day, a bad month, a year, seasons? But there's something that I've learned and I, I just, I want you to hear is that our response is our responsibility. Our response is our responsibility. See, suffering changes you. It can't help but change you because it's generally so monumental that you have to respond. Have you ever met someone and they're really bitter and snarly and negative and then you hear their story and you go, oh, yeah, it kind of makes sense. But then you meet someone else who is soft and kind and generous and compassionate. You hear their life story and also being full of pain and suffering and you say, wow, yeah, who they are makes sense. Suffering changes you, but how it changes you depends on your response. What do I see as common responses and ones that we're all guilty of at times? Is there's a desire for pity. So much so 
that they bleed everywhere, share their woes with anyone who will listen until that person gets sick of listening and then they move on and tell the same story to the next 10 people and it's just like blood everywhere. I'm not talking about the general caring for each other in community. I'm talking about the people who just, I don't know. You get what I'm saying, right? Yeah? There's an unwillingness to persevere. I find that people go beyond the healthy measure of acknowledging their emotions and go to a point where their emotions dictate and rule their life. There's a lack of responsibility for one's actions. There's selfishness and self-indulgence. Maybe because they've been hurt, they create these big walls around them in the hope that it will protect themselves. I see people respond in busyness, a response of if I keep busy enough, it'll just sort itself out, it'll just, it'll just go away. The approach to bad days and suffering is different all around the world, but in a secular society, suffering takes away a lot of things that bring about meaning and purpose for life. When your life is based off the things of this world, suffering might look to take away your love take away comfort, take away pleasure, take away material things. And see, Christianity is unique in what it offers because we have a biblical story line where at the start of it, God didn't create a world like this. He didn't create it with death and cancer and sickness and pain. But when we turned away from God, everything started to fall apart. Body, soul, creation itself. But that wasn't his plan. But what it does mean is that part of the brokenness of this world is unjust and suffering can be totally disproportionate. You know, we see this in the story of Job in the Bible. Terrible things happened to him that he didn't deserve. And his friends came along and asked him what he had done to deserve this suffering. And although the Bible tells us that Job didn't deserve it, his friends insisted otherwise. And we see God at the end of this book totally furious with his friends for believing that there is no such thing as unjust suffering. And that's a big part of what that book is about. Part of the brokenness of this world is that innocent people suffer. And we see it in the person of Jesus. Jesus, of all people, deserved a good life, but he got the cross. And so we see again what is unique about Christianity is that God himself understands what it means to suffer unjustly. Not long after I moved back to New Zealand after living in Australia, um, I remember praying just to understand the love of Christ because I'd always felt, like, as I said, that God had been my comrade in war and a, I just couldn't understand necessarily understand the consistent love and peace that God offers and speaks about in that verse. Because if he ever did offer peace, it certainly just came as a surprise. It was almost miraculous to experience that level of peace. And so I found myself looking at the cross. And you might say, hey, Brie, isn't the cross just all about our salvation? You know, about how Jesus came and died for our sins so that we can have relationship with him. Well, yes. But we see something else at the cross and we see and we know that God loves us. We are assured that although we might not see it in our circumstances, it assures us that there is a God who loves us. I'm sure that there were people who were looking at Jesus up on that cross, asking similar questions, looking at their Savior dying, a criminal's death on the cross, unsure of what was next. Disillusioned and confused and filled with grief and sadness and hopelessness and disappointment and loss, but failing to understand and realize the bigger picture that God had. The cross tells us that God had and has this bigger picture and much, much bigger picture, a bigger canvas than he is painting on that we can ever comprehend. 
And I'm sure most wouldn't have been able to see that at the cross. One of the traps of our human condition is that we always insist on knowing the answers or at least wanting to know the reasons why. Why is this happening to us? And then we have this unrealistic idea that if we simply knew why this was happening, that we would become comforted by that. But do you think Job would have been comforted and they would have said, hey, you know, Job, in a few thousand years, there's going to be people hearing your story and comforted by your pain and suffering. Do you think he would have gone like, yeah, it's all good now? The fact that my family's all died, my home, my livelihood are gone, I'm covered in sores. It's like, I wouldn't be. We're assuming that if we could see things from God's perspective, that we'd be comforted. But that's just hopeful at best. Can we truly expect to know the mind of God when it comes to the complexities of a fallen and sinful and damaged world? Will a human trust an invisible and sovereign God even when everything around them seemingly discredits God's goodness or even his existence? Our response because of the cross should be one to get back up, to trust God, serve God, love God, thank God, to admit our feelings but not indulge in them, admit our failures, even our sins that consequently cause us pain, to respond in faith and trust in a God that has got a way bigger picture in mind. And that's a war. It's a war of acknowledging that trouble will come but that we have peace and a relationship with our God. Ultimately, trouble and hardship prove your faith and they prove the the depth of your faith and trust in him. Trials are not something that's only happening to you at that time, but in that time, God is doing something in you. He is asking us, do you believe that I, that God ultimately has got you in the palm of his hand? Do you believe that God cares for you and loves you? And ultimately, who do you trust? That's what faith is all about. And sometimes when we're going through hard times, we become short-sighted and we can barely see what's in front of us. But one of the things that we have to remember is that this life isn't it. God holds both our present reality and eternity in his hands. And I don't want to lie and say that there isn't always pretty endings and it's just like this perfect Hallmark movie where everything's wrapped up in a nice little package. Because it certainly hasn't been the case in my life. And sometimes I felt so low that all I can do is look up, look up to the cross. You know, why do, we always ask the question, why does God allow suffering to continue? And I don't know, honestly. But it can't be because he doesn't love us. The cross shows us that. I've had to choose to trust God so many times, over and over again. Because, you know, we're not powerless. We choose our response. Our response is our responsibility. We choose to trust him and trust that he has got the bigger picture in mind and a more hope-filled perspective of the world, and that is his promise for us too. We're going to get the band up. um, If that would be, if you guys could come up, that would be great. The next bit of time that we've got in this service is yours. And the band's going to play a song for us. And down the front here, we've got a communion table set up for you if you want to partake in it. 
Um, for those who are unfamiliar with communion, it's a time that allows us to reflect on the fact that um, Jesus died on the cross to save us from our sins. And the bread signifies the body of Christ and the juice signifies uh, Christ's blood, which was shed on the cross for us. And that because of that sacrifice, we have the opportunity to come to him, to receive God's grace, his forgiveness for what we've done wrong. And in return, we receive his mercy, his compassion, and know his love and his peace. When we receive Christ and know his forgiveness like this and understand that he died on the cross for us so that we might have love, uh, life with him after death, eternal life. So as you come and you take the bread and juice, just allow this time of communion with Jesus to soak in the magnitude of all that Jesus has done for us. Because tonight, no matter where you're at, whether you're feeling like you're stuck in a pit and there doesn't seem to be a way out or suffering and you have bad health, you find yourself in difficult circumstances or someone's hurt you, you've experienced job loss, the one thing that you can do is look up and look to the cross. Look up and reach out and allow God to speak that peace into your life and your circumstances. Give over your desires, confess the things you've done wrong, give over your burdens and choose to trust him as you remember that God has overcome the world. But as I said, you know, this time is yours, so feel free to come down um, and grab your communion. Uh, you can take it back to your seats. You can come down um, and spend some time in front of the cross. Um, there's people down here that are really more than happy to pray with you as well. Um, just come up and ask. But pray with someone next to you. Just use this time to connect with God and remember all that he has done for us, guys. Cool. Thanks, team. <laughs>